how can it be, some people will ask themselves, that what is and is not true can be, depend not only on what the facts are, but on the human mind? How can that be? Well, let me use an analogy with vision. We tend to think that what we see just depends on what's out there. But the more one studies vision, either as a scientist or as a painter, one discovers that what's called vision involves an enormous amount of interpretation. The color we see as red is not the same color in terms of wavelengths at different times of the day. So that even in what we think of as our simplest transaction with the world, just looking at it, we are interpreting, you know, uh, in other words, we bring a whole number of things to the world that we're not directly conscious of, usually, unless we turn inwards and start examining them. That's right. Hilary Putnam is considered to be one of the most influential minds of the 20th century, making significant contributions to the fields of philosophy, mathematics, and computer science, among others. Putnam received his undergraduate degree from Penn in 1948, and received an honorary Doctor of Humane Letters from the university in 1985. At the time of his death earlier this year, Putnam was the Kogan University Professor Emeritus at Harvard University, where he served as faculty starting in 1965. In this special Omnia podcast, we speak with professors Gary Hatfield, Scott Weinstein, and Daniel Singer of philosophy about Putnam's legacy in their field and his connection with Penn as both a scholar and alumnus. Professor Hatfield describes first meeting Hillary Putnam in 1979 when Putnam hired him for a folding chair faculty position at Harvard University. He called me up in early January to offer me the job. It was snowing in Madison and I was working on my dissertation and I sort of let him know that, that this was interrupting my work and without a blink he said, that's why we want you at Harvard. He was quite a wit, Hillary Putnam. Uh, during the 1990s, we invited him here for a set of lectures funded by the provost called the Stru- Lectures on the Structure of Inquiry. I had a student take him around, and when the student took him to um, Houston Hall, uh, Hillary Putnam wept because that space had been so important to him as an undergraduate here at Penn during the, during the 1940s, and it somehow all came back to him. And perhaps he hadn't been there for a while, even though he got an honorary degree from the university in the 80s and had given lectures on other occasions. Putnam was a central figure in analytic philosophy beginning in the 1960s. One of his major contributions was a theory known as functionalism, which addressed the mind-body problem, a key issue in philosophy of mind. Professor Hatfield discusses this concept. Hillary, during during the 60s, developed a position called functionalism, uh, which allowed you to except that all psychological processes are somehow realized in matter, but without reducing them to matter and without identifying the psychological with the material. One way to explain this in terms, is in terms of the analogy with a digital computer. So suppose you think that a digital computer can actually think and that it has thinking processes in it. It's obvious that digital computers are not made of the same organic material that human brains are made of. Uh, Some of the, some electrochemical processes go on the brain and some electric switches are included in the computer. Um, But you wouldn't say that these are physically the same kinds of things, computers and brains. And so Hillary reasoned that if a computer could think, it must not be just what it's made of uh, that's involved in, in its being a thinking thing. Rather, it's what it does. It's the pattern of activity. This 
position of functionalism, I think, was liberating for a lot of people who didn't want to be dualists about the mind and body. So they didn't want to say, well, there's a separate stuff, mind, and then the body, and that's stuff too. Uh, Putnam taught them that it was okay to think, yeah, the psychological processes, the thought processes are realized in matter, but they're not in this strong way identical to that very matter. Because you could have similar or even the same thought processes in a different matter. And of course, when I teach philosophy of psychology or philosophy of mind, there will be a section on functionalism. And he's added that to any textbook or any surveyish treatment of philosophy of mind or philosophy of psychology. Assistant Professor Daniel Singer discusses Putnam's contribution to epistemology, or the study of knowledge and the rationality of belief. Putnam was a proponent of externalism, which argued that the conscious mind is not only the result of internal functions of the brain, but also what exists outside of the subject. Before Putnam's generation, it was really popular to try to understand philosophical concepts in an internal kind of way. Uh, so Descartes would be the go-to example here. Descartes was really interested in showing that we can know things, um, but not just showing that we could know things, but showing that we could tell from the inside that we know things. So it was really important uh, so we could sort of prove that from the inside. Uh, externalists, generally speaking, reject that methodology. They say that it's okay to try to explain interesting philosophical concepts appealing to things outside the agent. Uh, so Putnam was one of the major figures in moving folks towards thinking about externalism in lots of different areas. One particular concept that he was well known for is the concept of semantic externalism. And it's an externalist view about the meaning of words. Uh, so the contrasting internalist view would be semantic internalism. The semantic internalist says that what a word means is solely a function of what's going on in your head, what you think it means. Putnam argued that, no, actually what you mean is sometimes a function of things going on outside your head. Or the catchier version, uh, which he said, is that meanings just ain't in the head. And so he suggested that, for, especially for things, natural kinds like electrons, that what makes them all be able to be talking about the same thing is the persistent existence of the electron itself through all these contexts of discussion. So in order to convince people of this theory of reference that he had, uh, Hiller came up with, I think, his most famous thought experiment, which is the twin Earth thought experiment. Imagine there's a twin Earth, which is just like Earth in every single way, except that the water on twin Earth is not made out of H2O, it's made out of some other substance. Let's call it XYZ, that's not a real chemical formula, obviously, but... Uh, so, the, so everything on Twin Earth is just like regular Earth, except that the stuff that water's made out of is not hydrogen and oxygen, it's something else. And now Putnam says, let's consider two folks. One person on real Earth, let's call him Fred, and we'll think of someone on Twin Earth, let's call the Twin Earth person Ted. And so Fred and Ted are in, identical in every way, uh, except that the water in Fred is uh, H2O, whereas the water in Ted is XYZ, but in every other way they're totally identical. Uh, and now let's take some sentence that they say. So Fred says something like, water quenches thirst. Water quenches thirst. And uh, Ted also says, water quenches thirst. Water quenches thirst. Well, if meanings come from the head, then it must be that they mean the same thing, right? Uh, because inside, they have the same experiences. They're subjectively identical folks. But the stuff around Ted, when he says water quenches thirst, is actually XYZ. So it seems most plausible to think that what he means by 
water quenches thirst is that XYZ quenches thirst, not that H2O quenches thirst. So what Fred means must be different than what Ted means, even though what's going on inside their head is totally the same. So that's a pretty shocking view, I think, right? So the mental states that you're in can be determined by things outside of you. Like how could it be that what you believe is sometimes fixed by things that could be thousands of miles away? Or how could it be that what you desire could be fixed by things outside of your head? I know what I desire. How could it possibly be that that's, that's, that's not just stuff going on inside of me? Well, Putnam argued that it really is uh, in that kind of way. Besides his contributions to philosophy, Hilary Putnam was also an esteemed mathematician. In 1970, Putnam, along with Martin Davis, Julia Robinson, and Yuri Matevisevich, completed a theorem that answered one of the famous Hilbert problems. Published in 1900 by German mathematician David Hilbert, the list of 23 unresolved problems went on to influence some of the most important mathematical work in the 20th century. Professor Scott Weinstein discusses the significance of Hilbert's 10th problem, which Putnam helped to solve. The 10th problem actually goes back to antiquity, and some people even think that it's an answer to a particular question of that sort that actually is the foundation of all of Western philosophy insofar as the influence that it had on uh, Plato. So together, uh, people now re- you know, call this result the uh, Davis-Putnam-Robinson-Matiasevich uh, solution of Hilbert's 10th problem. Yeah, that's regarded as a kind of high watermark in in the sense that you know it's a really major uh, mathematical result. Hilary Putnam made his last visit to Penn in 2013 to speak at the Thomas and Yvonne Williams Symposia for the advancement of logic, philosophy, and technology. Before giving Hilary's introduction, Professor Weinstein made an interesting discovery about Putnam's formal training in mathematics. You know, I, I guess I only met Hillary twice, I think, in my entire life, and and most recently, uh, three years ago, when he came to give a wonderful lecture here called How Logic Morphed from Museum Piece to Marvel. And on that occasion, um, I was uh, introducing him, and I was advised that he'd majored in philosophy and mathematics. Yeah, and I thought, I'm giving an introduction, and he's right here. Why don't I, you know, just confirm this? Uh, you know, it's something, you know, that I'd been told, but also had read on the web in multiple sources. And so I asked him, uh, so you majored in logic and mathematics, did you? And he said, uh, no, I didn't major in mathematics. In fact, I hated the idea of taking mathematics courses. I, I think I, I might only have taken one mathematics course when I was at Penn. Mathematics isn't a race. You can't do mathematics under time pressure. I found the idea of taking examinations in math repugnant. So, you know, essentially, uh, Hillary's formal training in mathematics, at least as an undergraduate, extended so far as one semester of calculus for poets. He, he might be the, the only person with this sort of undergraduate training ever to have published an article in uh, the Annals of Mathematics, not to mention collaborated in the resolution of a Hilbert problem. And so he graduated from Penn in 1948 and went on to do one year of graduate study 
study at Harvard where I learned he did take you know, two additional mathematics courses and two semesters of study uh, in mathematical logic. But that was essentially his in, entire uh, formal training in mathematics. It's really quite astounding. Shortly after being hired by Putnam at Harvard in 1979, Gary Hatfield remembers receiving some lasting advice from him on writing and conducting work as a philosopher. He said, when you write philosophy, always have in mind an audience of individuals that are not themselves professional philosophers. Always be writing for the person one discipline over or one area of study over. And I always took that to be good advice. And it was conception of philosophy as intellectually engaged and outward looking. And as not just philosophers talking to each other, but philosophers talking to other people who are interested in the kinds of topics and problems that the philosophers are, are talking about. And the idea that the philosopher has something to contribute, but they need to be able to be heard by people outside of philosophy in order to be able to make that contribution. And I always found that to be very helpful uh, and useful advice and very thoughtfully um, delivered. This special Omnia podcast in tribute to Hilary Putnam is a production of Penn Arts and Sciences. Special thanks to professors Gary Hatfield, Scott Weinstein, and Daniel Singer from the Department of Philosophy. (laughs) 